Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. The kind of the horridness that we're describing here in Luther and Calvin, I think it comes full circle. I mean, I mean, it really it just takes on shape in attitudes toward war. That they're literally going to see the sword. You know, think of our song, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. His truth, you know, is marching on. It's all about the sword, wielding the sword. Soldiers are martyrs. The blood spilled in battle is the same as the martyr's blood. That's the end point of this conversation. That what would have been considered evil and violent in the first century is now declared Christian by the time we pass through the Protestant Reformation. And we know this is what we're all surrounded with. That in this country, I maybe I always think, Dan, that you folks in New Zealand are just a gentler people. <laughs> but American yeah, not in rugby. <laughs> oh, that's right. So that Constantinianism is more perverse and more of a problem today than it was in the period of Constantine. You can't keep a job in this country. You could never hope to keep a job as a preacher or a pastor and say these sorts of things in most churches or most seminaries and schools, because it goes against the religion that all of our, uh, you know, many of our neighbors are practicing. This, when you start talking this way, you start talking about patriotism as not really being Christian. You've touched upon the God that people are worshiping. So in that sense, I think we, we are in a worse position than actually in the, in uh, the Constantinian period. As I am, um present Baptist minister. Thank you for those dark thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Say these things in a sermon some Sunday and see how long you keep your job. I'll blame. It's my friend Paul Axton likes to say. <laughs> no, it's not what I think. It's what Paul thinks. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, just quote <laughs> me. I know that's dark. This is why I kind of like what Matt was saying. I think even in the darkness that Christ can break through. I mean, isn't that the witness of the scriptures is that that's precisely where Christ breaks through is into the darkness. Yeah. And just as God used Israel, despite all of their sinfulness, all of their rebellion, all of their unwillingness to obey him, he is going to reach people through his gospel, even if the entire institution of the church is completely corrupt as an institution, because there are people within it that are not. There are people within it who love God, who serve God, who speak the word of God. And just as Jesus told his disciples when they're saying, hey, these people over here are like, they're not really with us, but they're they're giving your story, you know, my, my paraphrase. And Jesus was saying, don't worry about it. You know, the, the message is still being told. It doesn't even matter what their motivations are. And to me, that's the, that's the beauty of God. He will use even the insincere, the corrupt, the false teachers, he will use them just like he used Israel to do what he intends to do, which is to reveal who he is to every living being. Yeah, there's Thank a hard passage there in Paul. You know, Paul says that 
you know, some people preach Christ out of genuine devotion and love, and other people preach him from uh, rivalry. And either way, as long as Christ is proclaimed, you know what I mean? It's like kind of a hard passage until you put it in the context of what Janice was just saying. One door into that conversation about the church and the military, like holding hands, to look at the suicide rate of our veterans coming back. It's like four or five times greater than what the military folks that die in service. Once they get home, it's it's even more dangerous. We're not made to kill. You really have to be desensitized, trained. And why I'm not? If, God, if the father kills the son, like just to boil down all the stuff, like that's what they're saying, right? And the atonement is that the father kills his son. They use Abraham. They use that whole passage with Isaac. They say that that's what's going on, that God actually goes through with it, and that he's the one who kills his son, that he tortures him to death, that he has to do so because his wrath needs to be spent. Like, to me, there's almost this weird, it like evokes almost kind of like a, I don't mean to be black. I mean, really, it's in a perverse way, almost like a sexual language. I just think it's totally blasphemous, really. I, I don't know how else to put it, just to, to imagine that God has to do what we just described. And you, you said it quite well, I thought, in your chapter, Paul, where it's like, well... I'm sorry. I thought that the Trinity was unified. I thought that the you know that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were were always united. But of course, penal substitution pits the Father. And this is go back to Jim's earlier question. By definition, what the penal substitution does is it pits the Father over and against the Son. There's a like a a divide in the heart of God in the you know in the Trinity itself, where God it's just this weird thing. It's like God turns his back on God. God abandons God. Paul says in his book that the father flees with the disciples, you know, and leaves Christ to his shameful cross. The whole fear of the psalmist is realized in Christ, right? Because the psalmist is saying, please, God, don't, don't abandon your servant and don't, don't leave your servant, you know, to, to see you know, so that my enemies will have victory and stuff like that. And they're saying, yeah, that actually is what happened. The father did abandon Christ. He did. And not only did he abandon him, he was the, he was the one who was doing the, the, the oppression and the, the injustice and the hate and the scourging and the, because he himself needed, he had, I guess, a psychological I don't know what what's going on there, Paul. What's the anatomy of the lie there, or whatever that that God has some sort of perverse psychological deficiency, a sort of masochistic rage or a sadistic rage? Maybe that's better to talk about it in terms of sadism. Only a sadistic sort of torture of his child is adequate. They, and they hate, by the way. Now I'm starting to get caught up, but I, I've talked to enough Calvinists and people who hate when we start talking about that. They say, I don't believe in child of cosmic child abuse. And I don't believe, but I don't think that they really thought what they're saying all the way through. And the reason why I get upset, and I probably shouldn't because it's like it's just me getting too, too excited, is because it paints such a terrible picture of our God. And it's a picture that people don't want anything to do with. People are like, they see kind of like the logic of what uh, is at the heart of our faith. And they go, yeah, I'm good. I don't want anything to do with that. And why would they? It's it's like, it's, it's craziness. I don't know. And it's like, I, I, I always feel bad when I start talking like that because I'm caught between speaking what I feel is the truth and like not wanting to like hurt people's feelings or whatever. But I, but I do think that if they think through what they're saying, it's not worthy of the glory of God. It's not. David Bentley had agrees with you, Matt, that uh, when people reject Christianity on the basis of that God to just portray, they're actually doing the right thing. They're doing the moral thing uh, because that God is immoral. He's a satanic, really. 
That's what he said. He says that he's satanic. He says that actually this is heart's words, not mine, but he says that the God of Jonathan Edwards is worse than Satan because he has mm. infinite, omnipotent power to do evil. Apparently Satan has some reason to be upset and some, you know, beef or whatever. Whereas God, it just in, in an arbitrary sort of capricious way has infinite power to just uh, predestine people to eternal conscious torment and things like which, that. Which is just nuts because this uh, creature is made in his image. Who's he, who's he hurting? Like, he, it's like, you know, creating children and then killing them. It's like, how's that good or wise or logical? It, it, I mean, Christ, it, like we said earlier, Christ is the icon of God. Christ is the image of God. So why would God be the one who's defacing his own? He, but, they, but they do all these gymnastics and say, no, no, it's because sin is somehow imputed to him and this and that. But either way, at the end of the day, from my understanding, and again, I'm happy bringing Calvinist on, bring some expert on and we can talk to him or whatever. But from my understanding, no, it's God is the agent of destruction and of hatred. And Christ is the, you know, he's like the, like I said earlier, like the receptacle of, of, of God's wrath. What is love? So the son in, in Trinitarian, like, it's just mind-blowing, right? I thought that the whole thing of the Trinity that was the Son was the object of the Father's love, not the Father's wrath. I'll take it a step darker, and then let's move on. What you're describing is evil, but I, I don't mean that just in a, oh, that here are some evil Christians. That what you've actually ended up doing is describing, I think, the root of evil. And we'll come to that in later chapters. I think we can do an anatomy of evil. We can say, okay, here's, here is the way that evil functions. What you're describing, in this case, theologically, will always be the way that evil functions. But let me leave it at that. Looking at Romans 7, it is clear that the will of the human being uses, uses even God's law, after also using many other things, to embrace the death drive, to submit the self or the ego to the reign of death. In such a case, the law is equated with God, and we are deceived by the lie that the law leads to life in some legal sense, some technical, some mechanistic sense. But it leads to an orientation towards death and the law that actually leads further and further into sin. We must actually embrace God, first indeed having been embraced by God, in order to be embracing and enjoying life and to know true freedom from death. I got it straight from Paul Axton. Oh, that's why I liked it so much. I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And I think what you've just described is the anatomy of evil. What is an evil? You know, a, a guy who robs, this is Marx. So, but you know, uh, uh, you can say a guy who robs a bank, well, that's evil. But what about the guy that founds a bank? Now, whether you agree with that statement or not, the point is that the system itself is, in fact, a kind of form of evil that is more substantial, and that's what we're up against. You know, there's evil people and evil individuals that, yeah, that's bad enough in and of itself, but organized system that calls evil good and makes the doing of the evil the ethical good and this is what this is why freud is quite significant you know he talks about the more the morality of man is actually immorality of man and of course things like killing and we all need to do our duty and you know that we can think of many instances 
where this organized systemic, the system itself is going to be equated with evil. And that's what you're actually describing. And I think that's what Paul is describing in Romans 7, though he's dealing with it at an individual level. And I think that's what Christ is taking on. So we shouldn't be too shocked in describing the evil of the world, because in a sense, then we understand, oh, this is why Christ came, because things really are evil. People are trained in killing, in doing evil, and they imagine that this is goodness. And that's precisely the, the system that needs challenge. And all you got to do, think of who killed Christ and why they killed him. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, you know, not, not that it's simply a Jewish thing, the Romans, and they're all killing him for good reason, for religious reasons, they're ethical, he's a, a blasphemer. And that little thing there, you know, we'll later we'll read the trial of Jesus. I think this is what's happening in John when he's describing the trial of Jesus. What's actually on trial in the trial of Jesus is Rome and Israel and their systems of justice. You understand the word original sin is kind of inadequate because you'll run into that word. It doesn't always mean what Augustine meant by it. But when we say the word original sin now, we often think of Augustine's doctrine of original sin. Of course, in some sense, Christians believe there was an original sin, but he means specifically that people are guilty due to Adam's sin. So that even at conception, an infant is already guilty. And then, you know, he tries to explain it. Well, maybe it's the whole sex thing. He puts sin before death, you know, and that's what he, he's going to talk about. Sin as a mystery. And then they're going to begin to talk about salvation as a mystery because it doesn't make any sense. I think they do mystify it. They mystify them both. And what I would say is no, sin's not a mystery that I think we can trace it. We can say, here's the anatomy of it. That's what Origen and Irenaeus and the early, many of the early church fathers are doing, are saying, and that's really all I'm doing in my book on psychoanalytic literature, that's really all Zizek and Lacan are doing, is that there's this orientation to death that can, in fact, give rise to evil. Is that what predestination and election, is that what Augustine's doing with those things? to make it all a bit of a mystery that only God knows and therefore we shouldn't even ask? Yes, that, it, that predestination is going to become something different, obviously, in, already in Augustine, but then in Calvin, it's just divine fiat, that God says it and that finishes it. Part of the mystery is God does these strange things. You know, Matt was giving us the rundown on Calvinism. I said, oh, you know, kind of facetiously, Oh, you just don't understand, you know, that God, but that you understand that is a true Calvinist answer. Mm. You know, you need to open yourself up. And of course, what they're saying, our words are equivocal. And mm. I think that in Calvinism, literally the words, be, they, they're going to be emptied of any meaning. Righteousness, that one, even Luther got sickened at his concepts of righteousness. Love, Calvin is going to talk about love as an anthropomorphism. Actually, he favors wrath as a characteristic of God over love. When we talk about a holistic approach, I think that's what we're doing in this class, but I think that's just the New Testament. You know, that we can talk about political, psychological, personal, social. In other words, everything ties into this understanding. Once we understand the way that 
our orientation to death can be a controlling factor in nearly every area of our life. And being freed from that, you know, this is why resurrection is not going to play any significant part in Augustinianism and Selmianism or Calvinism, because they've made death the penalty for sin. All that resurrection means is, oh, the penalty has been paid. It's not a resolution to the the deep-seated problem, and you miss then the sense in which our whole life, you know, Jim mentioned killing. You know, just out-and-out violence is just so much a part of the human predicament. So that's the, the holistic sense. Did you know, Paul, have you heard that I was, I was stunned when I, I heard this, that um, in John Calvin's Institutes, in all thousands of words and pages, he doesn't quote 1 John 4, God is love once. He doesn't refer to it, quote it, like it, it oh. plays. Um, it's, I mean, that's a lot of pages not to speak of God is love and not to quote 1 John 4, 8 or 16. That's amazing. Yeah, I didn't know that. That, that in and of itself is a, is a huge statement. Because Thomas, Thomas Talbot, Thomas Talbot, I think, says that. That's interesting, yeah. I don't want to get people confused about the role of language. What role for language in sin and salvation? I learned from you in the reading that basically it's kind of like a parallel to the law because you anything that you take and use as... A, a sort of stepping stone or fill in for for God has a parallel to the law. It could be it could be anything. Language is often used in this way. You know, I answered it mostly in the negative, but at the end also brought out what I heard you say, which is it's adequate to, for God to reveal Himself when He chooses to do so, like through Scripture. But we often take language and build a system of self-edification and God in our own image. Yeah. So it's the occasion for sin as well. And we can do this with the Bible. I'm afraid that's what we've done with the notions of a kind of inerrant scripture. We've taken mm -hmm. the word, the letter of the, the word, and we've reified it in such a way that that then becomes, we've done with the Bible what the Jews were doing with the law. But I don't mean anything special by that, because I just think that's always what people do. Okay. That's just a deep psychological truth about us, that we would cling to the letter. In some way, there, there is something that is deeply, you know, think of the Nazi camp guard who just finds great satisfaction in his work, because he can kill and torture in the name of the law. And there is a kind of underside of the law in which he derives great pleasure. And I think what I just described is evil. What I'm claiming is, it may seem kind of simple, but I think it's quite uh, <laughs> telling in how these things got flipped around. But Calvin is going to relate, you know, when we say penal, penalty, he's talking about Gehenna. He's talking about eternal fire. So we've left any kind of normative, you know, he's reading the Apostles' Creed, misreading the Apostles' Creed. And then he ties that into the stripes in Isaiah, and he knows he's doing this. Calvin says, I know this is not the normal reading of the Apostles' Creed, and he's right. I would claim that it's Calvin's innovation that gives us the full-blown doctrine. 
of penal substitution. It's so vast and pervasive in evangelicalism and Calvinism. I, that's the water I grew up breathing in. And, and penal substitution sounds very common to me and even has been more or less acceptable and to some degree unquestioned. And I even had a phase about 10 years ago, maybe 15, where I read a whole lot of Stanley Harawas. I appreciated him. I still do. But, you know, after reading basically his big uh, collection of essays and considering pacifism, my ending point was sort of after reading him that it was sort of an ideology, something that was a little bit too galvanized. And I was like, well, if it's impractical, if it's and it's an ideology, then maybe it's not the key. (laughs) But reconsidering it these days, Paul, listening to your messages, it seems like it is sort of the, the key. And you mentioned it earlier in this class, the recognition that it's pretty simple and plain and straightforward, just the radical notion that nonviolence and the way of Christ undoes all of evangelicalism and, and Calvinism. However, I also tend to want to not be so reactionary and dismissive and maybe, of course, not judgmental. Because, I mean, so many of the names you mentioned in your in your chapter two, John Piper, uh, Matt, you mentioned R.C. Sproul. Yeah, I mean, I cut my teeth on that in college and was introduced to scripture and parts of theology and the gospel deeply by John MacArthur and and more recently Dan Allender and and to see them cited in this very incriminating theology uh, from this perspective part of me wants to have patience uh, be careful not to condemn all of Christendom too fast and say that that we've gone so far off the rails it's irredeemable unless you you know sort of adopt this position. I think we can bear witness to the to the truth of it and the position that it demands as irrational maybe as it is or as not irrational but as uh, unrealistic a world as it is. And I think that this Trump phenomenon has sort of unveiled some aspect of it, some facet that has to be reckoned with or it's going to spiral even further into worse things, uh, mostly psychological unhealth of the people who adhere to it. That's the best I can do at sort of what, what I feel in my bones as we talk. I'm in full agreement and appreciate the re- being able to reconsider pacifism with this group uh, and more so uh, that radical uh, stance that Christ demonstrated in his, in his body and his actions and his path that we're called to follow. Yeah, I like what you're saying, Brian. And I, you understand, I haven't gone anywhere. I'm still part of the same church I was raised in. I preach in a little church, but I, so I could not hold a job because what I'm describing, even though it fits with the early part of our movement, it is, it's just unacceptable, I think, in most realms at this point. But nonetheless, I'm not going anywhere because I've met people that, I love and that love me, and this is kind of where I'm at. You know, this is kind of who I am. I don't have any grand recommendation of, oh, well, to, to go somewhere else. We, I think we all kind of find ourselves in a place 
And we just have to witness the love of Jesus where we're at. I have one quick question. Uh huh. I don't know if there's a quick answer, but do you have a peaceable explanation for death? I mean, in my opinion, until we can explain death as something other than a punishment, than, than a, a wrathful retribution of God, I don't know how we can go anywhere with all of this. And, you know, for me personally, I, I can only, I, I've thought of it some, but not, but not deeply, not enough to say I have a good answer, but just the, the things floating around in my mind are, are something along the line of there is death because God doesn't want sin to exist. So if there wasn't sin, there wouldn't be death. Does that make any sense? I mean, death is is the elimination of evil. It's not God's punishment upon us because we were bad boys and girls. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that I happen to believe that we are creatures. I mean, isn't that obvious that we're created? We're created mortal. You know, just taking the story in Genesis, the story is true to our understanding. People die unless they have some remedy for death. That remedy in that story is access to life, the life of God. So that death is, it is just the removal of the uh, access to God that's restored to us in Christ. But of course, death per se is not really what we're, our problem is. That is that the, the sting of death is what, Matt? Sin. We usually read that the other way around. That passage from Corinthians, I asked Matt, I always like to pick on it, because we all tend to read that wrong. That death is not the sting of sin. Sin is the sting of death. So that this thing can become more terrible than it is. But I think we have a resolution in Christ to the problem of mortality, because I think truly we have life in Christ. And so death need not be the controlling factor about us psychologically, socially, <clears throat> or in, in, in any other fashion. Yeah. Uh, Janice, I have a quick story. Uh, I, I was pronounced dead for 15 minutes five years ago next month. Wow. The nurse was giving me CPR. It just never gave up. The doctor told her to, let, to stop. I was gone. So after I came back, I still had a memory of the experience the best way I can say is I was being held in someone's hands and I just felt an infinite amount of love and understanding and care. It wasn't like I was disappointed coming back. I mean, I was relieved. I felt like I, you know, it's all bonus time now, but the experience was not something that, that I don't feel worried about after having that. So that's a wonderful story. I, and I appreciate that. So, Janice, I think you asked a wonderful question again, you know, with that. Unless we can bring a peaceable answer to death, then, you know, what are we really doing? And so I'm a hospice chaplain. So when I'm not playing pretend theologian, you know, I'm, I'm, I work uh, every day as a hospice chaplain. And so I, like, like Paul was saying, I, I've come to understand death not as like a particular moment in time where there's like the cessation of our you know, organs and things like that, but it's a process. You know, it's an orientation. It's, the, you know, this is how Paul and Paul has taught me this through his stuff is that 
even in Genesis 3, whenever God says, in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Well, it's not like Adam and Eve died within a 24-hour period or whatever. It's like in that in that time, you know, in that sort of time that you, in that age, call it, you know, or whatever, that you eat of the fruit, you shall die. But they don't die physically. They don't just drop dead. But, of course, they have a whole different orientation to God, to each other, to themselves. They're, they're experiencing a sort of living death, you know. And so that really resonated with me. And I was like, okay, wow, I've misunderstood what death is maybe i let the world tell me that well no what death really is is that when you drop dead and you don't breathe anymore that's when you're dead but the scriptures of course don't talk like that it says paul says and you were dead in your trespasses and your sins you know we, we talk in a different in a spiritual way about that and so as a hospice chaplain i can tell you that the people there is definitely like a marked difference between the process of death between like, and I can take this for granted, I think sometimes as a Christian, you know, and, and I mean this, but that for Christian people who are going through that process of, of grieving and of dying and of their last days, you know, there is a peace, there's a difference than the people who don't seem that don't have that faith and don't have that tradition and don't have that. They have questions, they have fears, they have anxieties that the people who are committed deeply to Christ don't have and, and even the people who are who are maybe even just like nominally committed like they, they even they seem to have a bit of a peace now whether they're you know sort of kidding themselves you know m- maybe they are but i would say the people who are deeply committed and have like a real living faith in, in our lord jesus christ like they have a very peaceable different like they talk about it like they say they they say things that are kind of shocking to me as a chaplain because i'm like wow how can you say that? Like, I, I'll ask them, I'll say, what's it like dying? You know, and they'll say, well, I have my Lord Jesus and I'm not worried. You know, I know that I'm going to go be with him. And this is just something I got to go. And it's just a whole very different experience that I think I can take because I get kind of jaded, you know, as a Christian. It's like it's easy to become jaded by like the Christian hope or something like that. But once I talk to people who don't have the Christian hope, then I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, that's what it looks like to be kind of. They, they, you know, they, they reflect on meaning differently, you know, the, their life, the meaning of their life, the meaning of their death, the meaning of reality, of their birth, of their, of everything, you know, and the value of it all and stuff like that. And they don't, they, and, and even from people from other religions, I was just talking to a lady today who's not a Christian. She's a Jewish lady. And, you know, she really should have more recourse to, to a, a better understanding of death, you know, than she does because of her Jewish tradition, but she doesn't. So she's just, you know, she's, she's without the hope that we have. And so all that rambling to say that I think that that peaceful, that peacefulness, you can talk about it in different ways, like hope, joy, even, you know, um, a looking forward to like what Jim was saying that like, it's not a despair, that peace kind of sums up. And that's what I like about what Forging Plow shares, that, that, that it's almost like Paul is, is summing up the gospel with peace you know and and all of its implications so i guess that's one way of thinking about it because i again it goes back to for me to like recapitulation that our lord has recapitulated the meaning of death the process of death what dying even means because for people without him it's pretty scary like there is no hope they like people i you know like that lady was telling me she was like well i guess i'm just gonna go be in the grave i'm gonna be dead i'm gonna be gone it's like well there's not very much peace in that I want to talk something about what Brian was saying earlier, because I was thinking about, and this goes to the heart of what I think Paul's doing with peace and atonement, that if what, what penal substitution is really saying is that what is the heart of atonement is violence, right? Like God is doing, you know, there's some sort of violent transaction that's happening there. There's some sort of God's pouring out his wrath. God's doing something that's not peaceable. It's not, 
it, it, right? It's not, it's like the opposite of what we think about peacemaking or mercy or uh, forbearance or, or things like that. Like, it's like, no, it's like the explosion, like Paul's describing in some of those quotes in that chapter. It's like the explosion of darkness, the explosion of, you know, it's again, the, the sort of sexual almost connotations. And I don't mean to be crass when I talk like that. I, I think that there's a perverse sort of thing that could be happening there. And again, Paul, I would def- Anytime we're talking about perversity, I like to defer to, to Paul's expertise. Wait, that didn't come out right. Um, no, <laughs> that but didn't sound right. <laughs> no, that didn't sound right at all. But uh, <laughs> that, that what they may not be willing to relinquish at the end of the day is violence. You know, because again, we've seen this in class. And Paul and I, we've done, we've been doing this for a while. So we've seen people give papers and stuff on peace and on peaceful atonement and stuff like that. And there'll be some, you know, some assistant professor that'll say, wait a second, you know, God reserves the right to, to do violence and God, you know, in other words, people passionately start to, to defend God's being violent. If you want to, if you want to really make people mad, start talking about peace and really like the implications of peace and God being peaceful. And it's like, it really pisses people off when you start talking about God's, you know, being peaceful. Um, and so especially it's like, Calvinist. especially Cal- and, 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 and that's true. And I don't mean to, be, and I like what Brian was saying earlier too. And I was feeling that, that I don't want to condemn, you know, again, I have people that I deeply love and care about who are deeply committed Calvinists and that they're they are fully committed to that. I think that they're wrong and that they're that they're in great error and that they've misunderstood and that that actually has ethical implications in the way they treat people and stuff like that. But isn't that what you were just saying, Brian, with Trumpism and things like that? In other words, that if that if Calvinism or penal substitution or if evangelicalism in some way is like underpinning Trumpism or or American sort of ideology and stuff like that, well, what's at the heart of penal substitution is violence. It just is. And so if what we're asking people to relinquish is their atonement theory, well, part and parcel of that then is to relinquish their violence. And I don't think that people are willing to do that because they want to reserve the right. They want God. I think that perversely, they want God to be violent as long as it's not towards them, you know, because they're the they're the elect. Right. Jesus. Jesus had great patience with the sons of thunder. You know, the Zebedees, the zealots wanted to rain down fire from heaven and they didn't get it but he also didn't dismiss them he just let it play you know yeah and did, my, did what he was called to do my two cents matt is uh let's say you're a carpenter you all you've got in your toolbox is a hammer that's the only mindset that some people have in my background i spent some time with uh some anabaptists some mennonites it was like now these people aren't so worried about war and making sure that so-and-so happens to such and such a country and you know it's like sitting alongside of or listening to other viewpoints is like a model that sort of it's not like i can read page after page and agree with everything that i'm reading but to actually be in the middle of or be with people that have somehow incorporated that into their thinking it's a different way of learning but having said all that you know if my steering wheel could talk, I wouldn't want it to repeat some things I've said, like at a red light, someone hits their horn behind me because I don't take off fast enough. You know, it's a, it's like a, it's a mix. But I think some people, that's the only thought process, the neurology in their mind is like, that's that's the only pathway they have to go by. It's not like they have like an array of options and they choose that. Yeah, I guess whenever you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So, and I think that that's true. You know, that that's that, that's 
lot of times like the sort of the horizon that it seems like they're they're dealing with. But I, I guess I, I would wonder, it does seem like it, there's an impenetrable I, I can't I, I I'll be honest, I've stopped. I, I, I used to think like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to Calvinists and I'm gonna convince them and stuff like this. And it's like I gave that up a little, many years ago. I was like, I'm not I'm getting out of that game. Um, because it's like it's a it, for me it's um I hate to be like this but it's like I don't care if if some if someone wants to if someone want, really wants to find the peace of Christ you can you got to dig for it you know it's like a treasure Jesus described the kingdom as like a treasure that's out in the middle of a field you got to dig for it you got to work for it but if you're content this is what Paul was saying earlier about there's a lot of people who just get bored with the scriptures because they have this they have it all that they have the system all worked out they they've got the letter worked out but I don't think they have the spiritual worked out where that Paul was talking about earlier. That's an infinite conversation. And I think that that's true. I think that this is a conversation that we're going to continue on after we're gone, you know, whenever we're together, whatever that looks like in the kingdom, it's like Jesus said, you know, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So apparently we're all, we're going to keep talking about the implications of God's kingdom and peace and love and, and human knowledge, you know, and, and all this stuff. I, I don't know how it's all going to play out, but if, they're, if, if people are just closed off to the idea of God being peaceable, at some point I wonder, like, are we talking about two different gods? That's where I, that's where I start to get a little bit nervous because I, I want to be gracious with Brian and say, well, wait, maybe there's, in with Jim too, and say, and with all you guys, and to say, well, there's a common ground and there's a, you know, there's a language that we're sharing and a faith and a set of commitments and all this stuff. But at, like, at what point are we talking about two different, two separate gods? You know what I mean? One who one who is a wrathful God who needs his wrath satiated and propitiated and all this stuff. And he's the, he's electing people for eternal conscious torment before the creation of the world that they can't do anything to change because, you know, uh, you know, regeneration precedes faith and all this stuff. So it's all God. It's like, well, wait a second. At what point is your God evil? At what point, because it's like, well, over here, we're trying to talk about a God who's the de very definition of the good, by which all goodness and beauty and truth participates in. And what it sounds like you guys are describing is a God who's a little bit ambivalent. It's like, well, he's, and it's what Paul was talking about with the equivocal language. He's like, oh, and I got that from Calvinists all the time. It's like, oh, Matt, you really just don't understand. And it's like, no, I think I do understand. I've been reading all the literature and listening to all the podcasts for years, and I've studied it pretty hard. I'm pretty sure I understand that what you're talking about is double predestination. I've read Augustine, you know, and it's like, what you're talking about is that God chooses some people to not be saved for his glory so that they, for eternal conscious torment, will be punished for his glory. You know, I, I don't know if it was Irenaeus. I think it may have been Irenaeus, Paul, who said that God's glory uh, is, is man fully made alive or, or something. In other words, like God's glory is man's good. I, I, to me, at some point, I, I start to wonder, it's like, okay, if we're talking about a violent sort of volcano god that has to be propitiated by a virgin sacrifice so that he won't destroy the people or whatever that's one type of way of talking about god and then there's another way of talking about god who like who doesn't need anything at all because he is the infinite overflowing uh you know of being itself and in, in whom we all participate and have our existence in our life he doesn't need a victim he doesn't need anything He's pure grace and goodness that overflows into creation and that that's who Christ is, you know, and that he, he if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he says. So to me, this are we not talking about two different gods here? I don't understand. At some point, where's the common ground? Like if there was a, if there was a Calvinist who was someone who was said, okay, I'm, I'm really am open and I'm, 
let's, you know, it's in good faith, let's have a good conversation or whatever. And let's talk about the common touch points that we have in our, in our understanding of God. I would definitely be open to that conversation, but I'm just haven't found that I haven't found any Calvinists who, who will engage me in that way. Maybe I'm the one who's not charitable enough because I have too many preconceived ideas or whatever, but I just wonder at the end of the day, Paul, are we talking about the same God? Cause it sounds like in your book, that's what you're wanting. You're not, I don't know. I haven't gotten all the way through it, but it sounds like you're kind of saying maybe that is this a different is this the god of the gospels is this the god is this the god proclaimed by the gospel of jesus christ and of the paul and of paul and the, of the apostolic you know the one holy catholic and apostolic church is this the gospel that was handed down you know uh or is this and you call it an innovation the penal substitution is an innovation in other words like what you're saying is is that they've made a departure from the deposit that was entrusted to the holy catholic and apostolic church you know, through the laying on of hands, through the passing, through the, you know, through the sacraments, all this different stuff, and that there's been an innovation that's not Christian. It's pagan. It's you know, it's it's evil. It's what it's what it sounds like. I don't want to speak for you in your in your in your chapter, and I know we're getting all tired, and we probably all need to go. But at some point, Janice said it earlier. You know, I don't want to put words in her mouth either, but it sounded like she was saying. And Paul, you do say in your chapter, you call, you call Calvin a false teacher. You know, those are, those are fighting words, right? Those are, that's strong. That is, that is strong. That's, you don't really get much strong. And I've been called a false teacher because of what we're talking about right now. So I understand that those are sharp cutting words, you know, to anybody. Them's fighting words. I was never Calvinist. I mean, I've never, I've never agreed with Tulip, but we were part of a Calvinist church. I eventually, I felt like I had been deceived from very beginning. I told him what I felt about Calvinism. Um, but of course, they used the term reformed theology. Right. Never, ever used the term Calvinism. Mm -hmm. And I just, I felt like I was tricked. I was basically, he was basically, you know, all the things that you think about Calvinism, that's just hyper-Calvinism. That's, that's not what we believe. And, and honestly, I believe that's true for most Calvinists. And I try to distinguish between Calvinism and Calvinists. None of my family and dear friends who I made over the, that decade who call themselves Calvinists actually believe the things that Calvinism teaches. Seriously, none that I know of. So I, my, my heart is with Calvinists. Calvinism, I think, is the Antichrist gospel. It is the absolute opposite of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So my, my heart is for these people because... They don't know that. They don't really even understand the things, the logical conclusions of Calvinism, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think that for many people, even penal substitution, you understand that I'm saying penal substitution is, is right out of John Calvin. Right. But you understand most Protestants, even in our group, who we pride, or, you know, this group prides themselves on being anti-Calvinist, but they believe in penal substitution. In Protestantism, Lutheranism, even there, it's it is pervasive. And most, if you describe it to most people, they say, "Well, that's not what I believe." Right. And okay, that that's not a problem. I, let me let me just say in conclusion that what I was trying to do in the chapter is to say Calvinism is a manifestation of a universal problem. Really, what we've done, we've just returned back to square one. 
because this is the human predicament. This is the human problem. Of course, it's a little more perverse because we've made the answer the problem. We've turned Christianity into, it is just in support of a understanding of the world. And by the, by universal, I mean universal. And as we go through this, I'll just describe that this is not unique to a theological group or position. This is the human problem. That's helpful to me because uh, I had purposely not watched any news for like two years because it just undermines my homeostasis. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's hard. So it's a universal thing, you know. Yeah. I was trying to do a, both a negative and a positive in the chapter. Say, okay, here's the history of where things went wrong, but things went wrong in the way they always go wrong. And I, that may not be clicking right yet, but as we go through it, I think I'll that we I'll demonstrate that. So well, Paul, okay. If you want to go, Paul, we'll just stay here and keep talking. <laughs> we're go we're going to order pizza. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why you want to get out of here when we're hitting the. We're hitting I I the just don't want to wear everybody out, uh, Matt. He contacted me. He said, why do we only, you know, why you only go an hour and a half? We need, you know, this is this is important stuff we're doing here. I, okay. Well, uh, well, when, you, way, there, when we, you do a seminary class, it's like when you do a focus intensive, it's like a two, two and a half, three hour class, you know? And Paul, I was like, well, if you just lecture for 50 minutes or an hour, that just sets the terms of the discussion. <laughs> if it was too intense tonight, I'll try to slow the pace down. I know I went through a lot of material. You're good. Okay. All right. I I really like the dialogue. But just before you go, then answer the question. Is the God of John Calvin the same God of Irenaeus, Origen, Maximus, Gregory of Nyssa, the Cappadocian fathers? You know, it, is, is it the same God? I think that God is the God of the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. He sends his reign on the wicked and the good. I think that God is is the only true God. And the God that is a, that is an idol is no God at all. And I think that's that in a sense that's what we're left with. Yes, people get they get off into nihilism and nothingness, but in the end nothing is nothing. Fair enough. I guess I'll have to content myself until <laughs> next week. <laughs> Hey, I sure appreciate everybody. This is a great conversation. We'll see you next week. Good night. All right. Good night. Bye. Good night. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.